please open your Bibles to the book of Acts. We are in a series in the book of Acts. If you're using the blue uh, church Bibles, that's page 1180. And uh, if you're new to Hope, that's what we do. We preach through entire books of the Bible. Uh, front to back, we're in Acts chapter 19. And uh, uh, we are uh, at the conclusion, uh, really, of, of Paul's second missionary journey. Acts 19, looking at the first 20, cha- uh, 20 verses. Uh, here now the reading of God's word. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. They were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, Many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magical arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is the word of the Lord. It is uh, good to be back, and I want to thank uh, Christopher Heslip and uh, and Matt Bowling for taking the pulpit and uh, and blessing you with God's word, and for Stephen uh, also for bringing us the word on on Thanksgiving Day. Uh, there are so many unusual things in this passage 
that um, this is the first time actually in this series that I, I had a little trouble figuring what, what threads do I want to draw out of this one uh, that you would want to, to think about and know and reflect on in all of these verses. So, so uh, uh, please forgive me, I did not put together an outline. Uh, uh, this got sort of nailed down last evening. Uh, uh, but there are so many interesting applications from from some of the strange things that are going on in this passage, and uh, and it's highly relevant to us as well as I think you'll see. But I broke down the passage this way: we're going to look at why theology matters, why discernment matters, and why the Holy Spirit matters. Try to keep it simple: theology matters, discernment matters. The Holy Spirit matters. So let's look first at the issue of theology. Uh, as Paul had promised, if God had so willed it, he would, you'll recall, return to Ephesus. And here he does that. He stays here for over two years and he's, he's teaching every day. Of course, he goes through his normal practice where he first went to the synagogue and then also out in the, uh, in the surrounding town. And he's even, uh, 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 proclaiming the gospel, uh, to this, uh, to these folks in the hall of Tyrannus. And here he meets some disciples. And I think it's actually okay here to use the scare quotes around disciples. Uh, note what's missing here. Usually in the New Testament, whenever you see that word disciples in the Gospels, you almost always see the definite article, the disciples. Except when you read about the disciples of John, and then they're just disciples. So there's the disciples, those who are the disciples of Christ uh, in, in, in the Gospels. But when we're just talking generically about disciples, they're typically John's. And that is what we seem to have here. Here in verse 1, it's unclear whether these disciples for Paul are Jews who were disciples of John the Baptist. We're going to see in a minute uh, that they're identifying with the baptism of John. Or whether they are Gentiles who had been baptized like Apollos had, but who only knew of the baptism of John. In either case, they're part of this congregation in in Ephesus that Paul meets up with, and yet there's something missing here. There's something missing here. We don't know if it's something that they said that Paul picked up on. We don't know uh, if it's something that they did or if it's just a result of, of Paul's own spiritual wisdom, but somehow he knows something is missing with these 12. And he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Remember, as Christopher taught us a, a, a couple of weeks ago, Apollos was counted among the believers, and yet he needed to be taught, chapter 18, verse 26, the way of God more accurately. Remember? That's what was missing for him. He needed further teaching in the word. He had at least been instructed generally into the ways of the Lord. But here there's something different. Here there's something different. Uh, Here you have some pretty interesting wording. Not, have you been baptized? But into what were you baptized? Paul asks not when or if, they have been baptized, but into what? And the answer of these disciples is that they've been baptized into 
John's baptism and, uh, and that they didn't know yet the Holy Spirit, meaning, meaning that they were not believers, meaning that they didn't yet believe in Jesus because the Holy Spirit always comes and indwells in the act of regeneration and conversion. So they, they have these gaping holes in their theology and their understanding of what we might call the history of redemption. Meaning this, one baptism, that is the baptism of John, says that Messiah is coming. The other baptism, the post-resurrection New Testament baptism, baptism says Messiah has come. Now, by the way, that doesn't mean that uh, if, if, you're, if, if your theology is that Messiah is coming, that you can't be a Christian. We see in Hebrews 11, there are Old Testament saints that, uh, that know that Messiah is coming and their hope is, is in Christ. But we also see in Hebrews 11 that they have the Spirit. They have the Spirit. And, and, and these men do not. They're in a sort of theological no man's land because they know they have not kept God's law. They were willing to be baptized with this baptism of repentance. That's what John's baptism was all about. But they don't know that Jesus kept the law for them. That is what they don't know. They, they know that one is to come, but they didn't seem to know much at all about Jesus as the one who had come. They don't seem to understand the cross or the resurrection or the ascension of Jesus, even if they had heard about these things. They needed to know what had been done for them in Christ. That instead of merely knowing that they were sinners on the inside, they also needed to know that something had happened for them on the outside and was was given to them, was on offer to them as a gift through the power of the Spirit. And so Paul teaches them, Paul baptizes them, and the Spirit comes upon these twelve and they speak in tongues. Now, this brings up the question, should you expect exactly this to happen to you? Should all of you expect to speak in tongues today or at least at your conversion? And the answer to that in the passage in the book of Acts itself is no. There are plenty of other people converted in the New Testament who didn't speak in tongues. They were, there were thousands, remember there were thousands converted on the day of, of Pentecost who did not speak in tongues. We forget that, that in the beginning on the day of Pentecost, there is an outpouring of, of the Spirit. Languages are spoken, and then Peter preaches a sermon, and at the end of Peter's sermon, thousands more believe, but they don't speak in tongues. And that's in one day. And that's in one day. Uh, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8 did not speak in tongues. Lydia or her household in Acts 16. Or the Philippian jailer, who certainly had witnessed miracles, uh, he and his household did not speak in tongues. Uh, uh, there were other people converted in Ephesus for whom this did not happen. Just these twelve. And yet all of those people we just mentioned did receive the indwelling Holy Spirit. So that Paul demands Christian baptism because they have not yet been baptized in the, in, in the name of Christ or of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't Trinitarian. Theology, as we're saying, uh, uh, matters. 
But as you heard uh, Jane read for us earlier from Romans 8, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And yet all these other people do belong to Christ, Lydia, the Philippian jailer, and so, so on and so forth. And in 1 Corinthians 12, on your reflections page, it says there, Paul says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And yet all these people say that Jesus is Lord. So they do have the Holy Spirit. So what about this issue of tongues? Tongues and the accompanying outpouring of the Spirit in this particular way marked both a fulfillment and the close of an era, or the beginning of a close of an era. It marked a specific act of God in time. And, and, and these moments in Scripture happen, and they happen if you take a, a long view of Scripture, if you sort of take a, a wide-angle lens at all of redemptive period, period, uh, history, you'll see that there are periods, there are epics, there are eras where, where the miraculous seems to come. And, and, and so, so take, take miracles in general, including tongues. They occur in three specific clusters in redemptive history. They were common in the time of Moses, and then that was it for a while. And then, and then there was again the time, the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. They were very common, and then that was it for a while. And finally, in the ministry of Jesus and his apostles, and then that is it. Each of these periods, by the way, was less than a hundred years. And, 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 and so in those particular times, God is moving in specific ways in redemptive history to reveal himself, to affirm what he is doing, and to fulfill his promises at those particular times. Let me say this one more time here then, that this outpouring of the Spirit on these twelve fulfilled a particular promise that Jesus had made about himself for us, and here the Spirit of Christ is fulfilling it. Jesus, you'll remember, in this very book of Acts, appeared miraculously before the disciples to the eleven and said, you, that is not everybody, but you, his disciples, you, will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We then saw that power uh, confirmed in Jerusalem at Pentecost and then in Judea and now here we are at the outermost regions of the known world. And it happens now again. You see, you have these concentric circles of the gospel going out there. And it's for a purpose. It's for a purpose. It's not only to confirm that Jesus is the Christ as Christ is proclaimed in each of those places. But it's also so that we will learn that there's no such thing as a hyphenated Christian. That, that, that there's going to be the center group of, of the disciples who actually knew Jesus, and they'll be the special ones. And then we'll go a little further out to Judea, and sort of like people in the outer court of the, uh, uh, of the temple, they'll be a little less special. And then, oh my goodness, the gospel goes to the Samaritans. So we'll call them Christian Samaritans, and they'll be a, a little less 
on the scale. And then, my goodness, the gospel's going to Gentiles, and uh, we're going to have to, uh, you know, still have those food laws because we don't want to be with Gentiles, and they're they're strange people, and they're different races and different cultures and different languages. No, each and every time that the Spirit comes down, the walls come down, so that we are one in Christ. And that, that last wall, that last dividing line, that, that, that you, you see these concentric circles of, of, of culture not being an issue, of, t- of, of, of speaking language not being an issue, of race not being an issue, of, of different cultures as they go to different parts of, uh, of Turkey and Asia and Europe not being an issue, all the walls are crashing to the ground. So there is no hyphenated Christian. There is all of us together in Christ, no matter where you are in the world, because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's what this is confirming. This is that, that's what the, the, the sound of the of the Spirit falling on all these peoples makes that that uh, uh, that experience almost a necessity to mark that event in time. Let me put it this way. If you believe that Jesus Christ lived for your righteousness, that Jesus died for your sins and was raised on the third day by the power of God for his and your vindication on the third day, the only way you can believe it is because the Holy Spirit has already awakened your dead heart to know it and to believe it. You have the outpouring, you see, of the Holy Spirit. The reason that this, this outpouring in tongues is the exception and not the rule is not anything bad or wrong about you, but there was something being revealed and affirmed and fulfilled there for all time in redemptive history and then inscripturated so that all believers would have this assurance of salvation no matter where you are in the world, no matter what your culture is, no matter what language you speak, no matter what the color of your skin is. Uh, It's for a specific witness and purpose. Theology does matter. And this outpouring would be no more repeatable or repeated than Christ having to die on the cross again because those events were for a singular purpose purpose. Now, we do have things that we repeat. We're about to have the Lord's Supper. And that is a sign that we are given to repeat, as baptism is as well. These signs point back to those events and already come with the Spirit's presence and power and assurance. But you have the Spirit. So, so, so we need to apply this before we move on. If you're concerned about more empowerment for godly living, you do not need, brothers and sisters, to again receive the Holy Spirit. Some of us struggle in exactly that way. We, we feel like we just don't have the power within us for greater godly living, and we keep asking for more of the Spirit, but we have the Spirit. If you say, but I'm struggling to fight this or that battle with sin and I need greater measure of Spirit's power. No, you see, we're always confusing the gifting of the Spirit with the receiving of the Spirit. And it's because we're always looking within. Friends, anytime you look within for the Spirit's power, you're always going to say it's not enough. You have to look without 
You have to look without to the promises of God and to your brothers and sisters in the body. The spirit indwells a body. We do not have an individualistic faith where it's all about you and your Jesus and your Bible and the spirit that you have. And some people got a bigger deposit of the spirit than you did. And if you had more of the spirit, then you'd be able to obey like that person over there or like that saint over here. That's not how it works. God, the Bible tells us, he spreads out his gifts among, his, among the body the way that he wants. And, and, and some of us have more difficulty in obedience in some areas of the Christian life than others do. But the whole body, you see, is to be used and to care for and to counsel and to, and, and to come alongside at those particular times so that those who have more strength in those areas give to others. And by the way, vice versa, you have strengths and you have gifts to give to others where you're stronger. But he's given them to the church. Because the gifts of the Spirit are distributed as God chooses. When it comes to the Holy Spirit, this isn't sort of your your Christmas wish list, and he gives you exactly what's on your list. Now, you can ask God for anything that you want, but he's God, you're not, and he knows what you need better than you do. More than that, he's already given you more than you deserve. Think about that. He's already given you more than you deserve, more than you can conceive, more than you can ever need. He's given you life when there was no life. He's given you the righteousness of another who is perfect when you are not. He's given you a status in the heavenly places that all of us collectively cannot yet imagine, but he's given it to us. And he's given you his spirit as a guarantee that you belong to him. So brothers and sisters, if you do speak in tongues, why don't you use the tongue that you have to thank him for the spirit that he's given you? Amen? Amen. You belong to him. You belong to him. This is then, this gift is nothing for us to clamor over. We have the spirit, otherwise we could not be in Christ in the first place. Now, I do need to move on here, but this does bring the question uh, up of second baptisms. And I get this question a couple of times a year. So this is the best spot I can think of to do it. And again, here again, theology matters. There's a term in the history of Protestantism uh, called Anabaptism. And there's a group, uh, again, in church history called the Anabaptists. And the, the prefix Anna, it's not some sort of weird contraction that helps you tell a, a, you know, a joke like a Presbyterian Anabaptist went into a bar. That's, that's not what that, that means. No, that, that prefix A-N-A, Anabaptist, means again or to redo. And the idea was these folks are sometimes referred to as part of the Radical Reformation. The idea was that the Catholic Church, um, the Catholic Church in all ways was no longer a true church, and therefore any baptism, the Anabaptists said, that came from them did not constitute a genuine Christian baptism, and therefore to really be a Christian you needed to be baptized again. That is to have it redone. Whereas what we might call the main branches of the Reformation, those led by Martin Luther and John Calvin, uh, they believed that the Catholic Church was a true church, 
but a church that was in grave error, and yet their their baptism was rightly done it, because it was done in the name of the Father and the name of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and the triune God is the active party in baptism and in the Lord's Supper, and so it does not need to be redone. And by the way, the Baptist denomination did not come from the Anabaptists. Okay, um, uh, they, they, they not only, um, this group, the Anabaptists, not only separated themselves from the church in that day, but they redefined what it meant to be a Christian in the world, period. And you see this line, we still have it witness uh, with us in this area, um, with the Mennonites and the Amish. They come from that Anabaptist uh, uh, stream. But this is not that. Uh, this baptism that Paul is doing, this rebaptism, you could say. The reason here, again, as we said, is that when John the Baptist actually explained his baptism in Luke 3, remember, he spoke of the, the axe that needs to be laid at the, um, uh, at the root of the tree, meaning that all men and women from the line of Adam have been unable to do the law. That was the big problem. And so all are from a line of covenant breakers who have no hope. No, the hope was with the baptism that John did that, that we would not only be, be repenting of that sin, but then we would be planted in the stump, you see, with the shoot of Jesus, that we would be replanted in Christ. And that that's what New Testament baptism is all about. That, that you're no longer a son of, uh, or daughter of Adam, you're a son or daughter of a living God of Jesus Christ. And that what Christ did is for you. Second, discernment matters. And these last two points are a good bit shorter. This is, this, this is a passage. This is a passage that has disturbed some people over the years. Uh, I've had meetings in my office where, where somebody says, Pastor, I have a question. It's about, it's about Acts 19. And I can almost know it's one or two or three things that are about, it's about to come my way. And, um, uh, if this is, if you're visiting with us today or you're new to Christianity, this may seem like inside baseball, but I think it's pretty interesting inside baseball. Uh, <clears throat> so here it is. I've met a number of people over the years who've been taken in previously by faith healers of the pr- prosperity gospel stripe, the, uh, uh, the Benny Hens of the world. And, and later they, they come out of that, but they remain disturbed by this passage because to them, Paul here sounds a little bit like Benny Hinn, right? Uh, uh, with the handkerchiefs and the aprons that are being passed around, uh, uh, handkerchiefs and aprons that had been laid at Paul's feet, and now they're being carried off to heal people when they touch people's skin while seemingly being separate from the proclamation of, of the gospel. And uh, uh, likewise, um, this uh, passage also, too, has been used to support the practice of relics, which we used to uh, have in, in, in the church, where people believe that the material things that were a part of the apostolic church have continuing power uh, to do things today. Um, you know, the, here is here is the the, the nail that uh, went into Peter when he was later crucified, something like that. That if one of you were to lay hold of one of these handkerchiefs today, if you found the handkerchief, if you were doing a dig in the ancient Near East and you dug up the handkerchief that had touched Paul in Acts chapter 19, it would still maintain the miraculous power to heal. 
a kind of talisman to be maintained. And then it itself becomes something that gets worshipped. But no, what is really going on here is a, is, is a teaching here that we so need in our day, and that is a teaching of discernment. Now, like some others of the disciples, Peter notably, Paul's ministry was marked by power. Paul's ministry was marked by power. These powers, again, had a purpose to them. They authenticated Paul as a messenger of the gospel, and they then further authenticated the message that Paul preached as well. Nothing more or nothing less than this. Here's Paul. He's going to the Gentiles. That's going to need to be authenticated. Here's Paul, who was a persecutor of the Christian church and now is saying, I'm an apostle of the Christian church. That's going to need to be authenticated. And and and, and Paul's doing these things in power was that authentic, authentication. Now, it couldn't be more clear in verses 11 and 12. It says there, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Not Paul, but God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. God is doing all of this so that even the mildest exposure to Paul and his ministry of the gospel about Jesus was bringing miraculous healing all over Ephesus. But be discerning. Be discerning. Paul is not trying to do what the contemporary Big Tent guys are doing, the guys on the, on the Trinity Broadcasting Network do with their healing ministries. Uh, Paul does not, uh, uh, you know, he's not in the middle of giving a message in the Hall of Tyrannus, and about every 30 minutes he stops and he says, now if you would send in $50, we'll send you back an apron. <laughs> and you can rub that ap- you can make your thanksgiving turkey with that apron on and that that turkey's going to have healing powers because you've used this apron so send me the $50 that's not what he's doing in fact in verse 17 you're told the purpose of this particular miraculous work of the spirit that the name of the lord jesus was extolled the name of the lord jesus was extolled was magnified is what that means now, here is an axiom in Scripture, and uh, I don't know of an exception to this. Whenever God is working through one of his servants in power, satanic counterfeits are always, always there to show up, to confuse men and women, to lead them astray, and to financially profit from the foolish. Whenever God's people are given power to work, counterfeits are always going to show up to confuse people, to lead them astray, and to financially profit from the foolish. And here they come. Here they come. In this case, it's a family team of scoundrels, an itinerant group, we're told, who likely trade off of a good family name, but see that they can get rich. They were the seven sons of a Jewish high priest named, named Sceva. I don't know if this is the word where we get the word skeevy from, but they're from the family of Skeva. And they're traveling exorcists 
who made money off of the gullible. But they come to Ephesus and everyone's talking about Paul's ministry. And they and they hear, you know, oh, this guy Paul's got a ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel. And they announce this, you know, they, they, they've checked things out. Uh, and, and so they're going to come to town and they're going to say, hey, guess what? We're casting out demons in the name of Jesus too. Come to us. And so they're hoping to make some money off of that. They're syncretists, right? That say two parts snake oil, a little bit of demonic power, mix in a little Jesus, and it's time to make some money. But in contrast to Paul, they have no power. They have no power. In fact, don't miss the humor in the passage. Don't miss the humor. They get completely owned in this passage by, of all people, the demonic powers. Paul doesn't have to lift a finger. The demonic powers even own these guys. Oh, the demonic powers, right? They recognize Paul. They've they've done business with Paul, and they are in fear of Jesus. The demons are always running into Jesus, you remember, in the Gospels, saying, oh, we know who you are. You're the Son of God. But here, the demons out them, right? You may be pulling big bucks down from from these gullible people, but, uh, but we know Paul. And we've met Jesus, and brothers and sisters, you're no Jesus. <laughs> you're actually one of us, <laughs> and we own you, and uh, you're posers, and you're wannabes, and they jump them. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's the application here. It's a little scary when you think of the people who've been taken in by the Creflo Dollars, and the Benny Hints, and the Kenneth Copelands, and the Joel Osteens, and yes, I'll start to add Joyce Meyer's name and even Andy Stanley. How many believers have less discernment than the demonic hosts? Something to think about. How many believers have even less discernment than the demonic hosts do? The demonic hosts recognize these guys. But do we? Here, even the demon knows that Paul is real, the hucksters are not, and yet I've met multiple confessing Christians who believe things that the list of people I gave you earlier teach over the teaching in the scriptures that constitutes the teachings that they now want to believe. Perhaps because they want to be wealthy, because they want a healing, because they, because they are in need. There are reasons that we believe these things. But it gets better because you'd love to see what happens here happen to a Joel Osteen or a Benny Hinn. Because here again, the demon jumps the seven sons of Sceva, strips them, exposes them for what they are, and sends them fleeing so that actual fear of the Lord spreads throughout the entire city. The false has become a joke and and what is true now becomes respected and believed among the people in Ephesus. See, this is a partial fulfillment of what will happen on the last day. Remember when Jesus says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is a a precursor fulfillment in prophetic perspective where you're seeing multiple fulfillments of this. And here's a foretaste of that when Jesus returns. 
And this is so highly relevant to us. I can't, I can't say this forcefully enough. If you've uh, been, re- been, been, been reading lately, there's a, there was an article in an online magazine called Quartz uh, last week in the magazine, The Christian Post. Uh, they, they, they did an article on the resurgence of witchcraft in our culture. I kid you not, this is the title that got my, uh, my attention this last week. This is the title. Witches outnumber Presbyterians in the U.S. Wicca paganism growing, in quotes, scare quotes, astronomically. Now, we're supposed to be the most technologically aware, the most advanced people that have ever walked the the face of the earth. We don't walk like this anymore. We walk upright and we send rockets to the moon. This is growing astronomically. And it's not me saying this, not just the Christian Post, it's not some online magazine. This is Pew doing a, a study on the growth of these things. Trinity College as well in Connecticut ran three large detailed religion surveys. They've shown that Wicca grew tremendously uh, from 1990, when there were only 8,000, to 2008. Now that's 10 years ago, when there were 340,000 practitioners. Now, Pew says, they're close to a million. But listen, we need to reach these folks just as the people in Ephesus came to the truth. And, you know, you think of, I know this happens, you think of, you you read this passage, you think of burning books, and you think of repression, and you think of censorship, and, and, and people wielding power to remove freedom, and books, of course, represent, I think, for all of us, sort of repositories for ideas, but that's not what this is. These aren't people marching on the local library to remove books that offend them like the Nazis did. These are people burning their own books, saying, I believe, I've been believing a lie. The things that I, I put my hopes in are, are trash. I need to get rid of this because the one in whom my hope is found has come. They're, they're scrolls. They're, they're, they're ridding themselves of the stuff about communing with the dead. They've now seen miracles, so they don't need magic anymore. They're discerning, you see. They're putting off what is false and discerning, putting on faith in the God who is there. Be discerning. Be discerning. Last and briefly, as we come to the table, the Holy Spirit matters. You know, at, at, at Hope, we, um, we don't make apologies for the depth and consistency of our teaching. We definitely don't make apologies for the length of our teaching. <laughs> Not just because right teaching bears fruit and false or partial teaching ruins lives, though it does, though it does, but also because this is the model that's going on here. Paul does this. We didn't even look at verses 8 to 10. He does this every day, and he does it every day for two years. What does the Spirit use to eradicate the evil spirits? What does the Spirit use to eradicate the the demons that have infested the the, the people of, of Ephesus? What does the Holy Spirit use to pour down the Spirit upon the twelve there? The Spirit uses the truth about Jesus to save lives. That's what the Spirit uses. 
He uses the truth about Jesus to save lives. That's the method, you see. Word and sacrament. Word, I'm teaching you, Paul says. Sacrament, have you been baptized yet? And how and into what have you been baptized? Word and sacrament working together. That's the method. And the Spirit is affirming that method. We're not to be so transfixed by the outpouring of the Spirit on these 12 that we keep wanting to replicate the sign, you see. We want to do what the sign was affirming, which is word and sacrament. Two very brief applications from this as we go to the table. This is a concern of mine. For you here today who are our older saints, be careful. Be very careful. What happens to older unbelievers um, uh, can, can happen. Uh, I've seen it happen over and over again. Just as many older Americans can be taken in by hucksters and marketers selling people things they don't need. I've seen older saints in the church. Once they hit about my age, they start to check out of Sunday school. Don't need it anymore. Been there, done that. They begin to check out of Bible studies. That's for younger people. They need that. They need that for their kids. I'm sorry, but you are not finished yet. My older saints, my beloved saints, who were here when I got here and are still here, you're not finished yet. You need to grow. You haven't stopped growing. You keep growing. By the way, we believe in eternal life. So you keep growing, and then you keep growing when you're in the presence of of the Mighty One. But you didn't have, oh, my learning years, now I know the gospel, and now I'm just like on cruise control in in, in like, you know, in in your Cadillac, you're the guy going 40 down the highway and just kind of, you don't care about anybody else because you're fine. (laughs) Repent. (laughs) Repent. You haven't finished growing, okay? You need to grow. You need to learn to the day that you die. Be discerning. Lastly, for all of us, God has given you everything necessary for life and godliness in Jesus. This does not mean that you will not have needs or that you will not suffer. You will and you will. But when you do, you don't need a new work of the Spirit with hands laid on you, but what you need are the hands stretched out to you to give you the signs of his broken body and the shed blood of Jesus so that you can hear once again the Father say to you, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You need that. You must have that. You no longer need a new tongue because you have the eternal word that proclaims to you and to your heart, because of Jesus, you are mine. You don't need another Pentecost. By the way, I've heard people say that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm so biblical and I take the word so seriously that I'm looking for another Pentecost. No, needing another Pentecost is not a high view of the scriptures. It's actually a low view of the scriptures because Pentecost was a once-for-all event to put you in the era, in the time of the, of the Spirit. You're already in the Spirit because you couldn't be in Christ if you didn't know the Spirit. Pentecost is so sufficient. The event complex here in the book of Acts that we're studying is so powerful and efficient that the Spirit poured out then and there is the same one that now indwells you by faith now. 
don't look past the gift you've already been given for one that God has already given you. You see? You are complete in him. In him. And nothing added is needed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fullness of the fellowship that we have in Jesus Christ through the power of the Spirit so that so that everything that is true about Jesus becomes true of us. That even though we, we do fight against sin, even though we do fall back again, and sometimes the old man seems to, uh, the old woman seems to take over our hearts and we're going backwards and we can sometimes think that we need more than we have, you already see us as we will be And sometimes what we need is the body of Christ to help us along that road to sanctification, to remind us of of the truth, that once again, while while we have a new struggle, what we need to hear is, and that too was known by Christ. He knows Alpha and Omega, and that too is forgiven. Run to the cross where you know that you're in him and grow and grow in Christ. So Lord, help us to do that even through through the word and sacrament today as we come to the table. May these elements used by the power of your spirit remind us of what we so richly have in Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Well, as we come to the table, let's, uh, let's take some time to uh, affirm the faith that uh, was, again, once and for all given to all the saints. It's the same faith that we have. We are brothers and sisters with those disciples. They are simply the foundation. We rest upon them and, and who they are and what they did and what they've taught to us. And we should take some time to affirm what it is that they have taught us. So let's use the Heidelberg Catechism, therefore, to do exactly that. Brothers and sisters, what is your only comfort in life and death? with body and soul, both in life and death, and not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully paid for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil.